Support for MPB comes from the Mississippi Museum of Art in Jackson. What Became of Dr. Smith by artist Noah Satterstrom is on view now through September 22, 2024. Learn more at msmuseumart.org. Welcome to the Arts Hour. I'm Larry Morrissey with the Mississippi Arts Commission, and this is the Commission's weekly turn at the microphone here at MPB. Each week we come in and have an in-depth discussion with a different creative Mississippian. That can be a visual artist, a musician, writers, photographers, or people in their community who help promote the arts and, and get the word out about the arts in their towns or in their regions. Today we're going to be talking about writing and the writing life with Chris Offit. He's an associate professor of English and screenwriting at the University of Mississippi but he's got a brand new book out called Country Dark. Chris, welcome. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Well, this is a, a really great new book. I, I just finished it, and uh, it's your first work of fiction. In, in quite, you, you, have, you have fiction, you have short story collections, you have memoir, but this and uh, a really interesting memoir, your previous book about your, uh, your father and your relationship with your father. Um, talk about kind of the return to long-form fiction. Well, it was never my intention to to take a break from it. Uh, other things kind of interfered, such as making a living. Uh, I needed to put my sons through college, uh, and I didn't have very much money at all. So I turned to Hollywood, which is where writers can go and you know get some cash. And I did that for several years. That interfered with writing uh, novels because the novel writing requires chunks of sustained time and focus and it was impossible the, uh, to do the Hollywood work and also do that um, it was always my intention to to, to write novels uh, right when I started this book my father died and I dealt with uh, what he left behind and my mother and that led into almost the accidental writing of a book about dad uh, so I'm as eager to get back to fiction as uh, as I hope people are to to read my my long awaited return. <laughs> so this has been percolating for a while. This story, or is this one that came to you quickly? I wouldn't say it's percolating for for a while. My idea was to write a big uh, uh, three generation family saga of life in the hills of Kentucky. Uh, set during the time of real dramatic change there. Uh, part of it was when I was a child. And that dramatic change was uh, blacktopping the roads, town water making it out into the smaller communities, the building of the interstate, the war on poverty in the 60s. Like These were had huge impact on the, on, uh, the communities there. So I thought I should start with the, what I uh, hoped would be the grandpa, uh, Tucker, uh, in the 1950s and write 40 or 50 pages and then jump into the next generation and like that. And I wound up sticking with uh, Tucker and uh, for the bulk of this book. Um, the more I wrote about him, the more I liked him, the more I got interested in him, and the more I realized that my plan for the way the, the grandfather would be in the big family saga, he became a person who would not fit that uh, those characteristics that I needed for that. So, plus, I just liked writing about a world where there were no cell phones, and no laptops, uh, and walking on dirt roads. <laughs> 
Yeah, so the book is mostly set in your your home county in eastern Kentucky, right? Or that that region? It's set in the region. I don't think the county is designated. Oh, okay. I I didn't want to be kind of boundary uh, Mm -hmm. by super specifics that way. Um, But it is, it's representative of uh, the Appalachian foothills of eastern Kentucky. Mm -hmm. And... Now you uh, you grew up in that region. Your mm-hmm. your father moved. He was from another part of Kentucky, mm-hmm. and y'all and he moved, kind of chose to move there. Right. So he was not he was not a native, um, or, or or your parents weren't natives of that. I'm I'm just curious about kind of, um, kind of this character and and how mm-hmm. it reflected people that you knew from the community. You know, growing up. My parents are natives of Kentucky. My right. family is in Kentucky for over 150 200 years. Right. Uh, they dad moved there. To, he was a salesman for Procter and Gamble. So that, and they just gave him the the worst territory because he was the young guy and had kids and was desperate. So that's how we wound up there. So it's really it, this. It's set in the world and the time when I was a child, but set uh, in the adult world. It's not seen through the eyes of a child. So it's the world that I knew uh, growing up and uh, is based on the ways of life that we had at the time that, to a large extent, have uh, faded quite a bit. Um, reading some of your, um, you know, y- y- your just kind of uh, essays and stuff, you talk about, you know, your love of the woods and mm-hmm. your love of mm-hmm. nature. And I'm I'm curious, and, and Tucker, the main character, he is like the woodsman of woodsmen. He <laughs> seems to know how to do anything, you know, kills rattlesnakes, cooks them up, eats them, knows every uh, bird that goes down a, mm-hmm. a, a limb and that. Uh, talk about kind of your uh, kind of education of the woods and how it how it feeds into Tucker as a character. Um, I grew up in the middle of the Daniel Boone National Forest. There was just dirt roads that, that went into the woods. Because it was National Forest, it wasn't, it was very protected, you know, it wasn't settled, it wasn't logged out or anything. There had been mines there, it had been, it had been a former mining town back in the 20s. But, um, so it was just outside every window, outside every door. And to get to my buddy's houses, uh, you could go by, a, by road, which meant going down a dirt road off the hill circling around the creek and then climbing back up the hill to get to their house. Or you could take a shortcut through the woods, which is what I grew up doing, uh, animal paths. Uh, Later, we turned them into bicycle paths by just riding our (laughs) beat-up old bike through the woods. Uh, So for me, it was second nature. The same with getting to school. I walked to school for 12 years, and um, it was a path through the woods that was a shortcut to the schoolhouse. So I didn't really think anything of it until I left and realized this is not how most people grow up. Um, and I often get homesick. And uh, when I write about the life uh, in the hills, my first thing to think about is is, is the woods. And uh, so my characters are often out there. When I finished this book and I and I went back and started revising it, I realized that three-quarters of this book is set outside. Uh, they hardly ever go in the house. And that says something, I don't know what, but it says something about my love of being outside. I'd rather be outside right now. <laughs> it's a beautiful day to yeah, be out there. it sure is. Did you learn all of the 
all of the the birds and the and the trees and all of that kind of minutia of of the woods as a as a child. Well, I was immersed in it, so I uh, learned it through observation. Um, we had there were bird books, and you know people were all the the other families. People knew everything, and so there was always somebody to say, "Well, that sound is." You know, that's the morning dove, that's a whippoorwill, that's a cardinal, that's a bobolink, that's this, that's that. And then there were the older people were still gathering uh, medicinal plants out of the woods. And I was drawn to that, and I liked uh, hanging around with them. So I kind of learned from them without meaning to. It wasn't conscious. Uh, and then I, as I got older and, and began my own study of life and all, uh, I turned to that. To uh, turn to the woods as a source of uh, information myself. So I've learned a lot on my own, but as a kid, it was really just immersive. It was like language. You know, if you grow up in a place where they speak one language and you move to another, you're a child. I was immersed in the language of the woods. Hmm. Uh, that that sounded good. That might be the title of my next book. <laughs> that could be. Let's bookmark that. <laughs> We're talking with Chris Offutt on the Arts Hour today, and we're talking. We're going to be talking just a minute about his brand new book, Country Dark. This just come out. Um, so, in your last book, you talked about you know your father and and his work as as a writer, and but kind of reading some of your other essay stuff, you didn't you know that wasn't you actually kind of wanted to become an actor. I think originally right? I wanted to become anything that was adventurous and glamorous to. A country boy in a community of 200 walking around in the woods all the time. I wanted to be a movie actor because they kissed beautiful women on screen. I wanted to be a paratrooper. I wanted to be a private detective like Sherlock Holmes. I wanted to be a race car driver. I wanted to be a professional baseball player. I just wanted to be something really that would take me out and seem like it would be a lot of fun. Uh, and instead, I became a guy who sits in the house all the time. <laughs> <laughs> but but between that part, I mean, a lot of uh, kind of your personal story is is kind of moving around, seeing the country and, and being different places. Seems like you've done a lot of that. Well, I, I chased some of those dreams a little while, uh, but I was always changing. Uh, I, want, I hitchhiked to New York to be an actor and didn't work out the way I had hoped. I wound up as a mover. Um, but I saw art for the first time in a in a museum and a gallery. And so then I bought a bunch of paint and decided I'm going to be a painter. So part of it was whenever I was exposed to something that interested me, I thought, I'll try, I'll take it up. The other part was, you know, I, I didn't go to town much as a kid. It was too far away. I could go anywhere I could walk to uh, and be back home, relatively, you know, close to dark. Uh, and after that, I had a burning desire to just see something other than the other side of the hill from where I grew up. And that meant desert and uh, the coasts and big cities and uh, the Midwest, the plains, the prairies. Uh, and I, I, I lived that way, deliberately trying to see the country until uh, I felt like I pretty much have. I probably missed a few places. Well, it sure seems like a long, a long list, long <clears throat> list. Um, how, when did you kind of, you grew up around a writer. When did you mm -hmm. circle back to writing, you, trying out acting, trying out painting, all these other things? When did it kind of say, oh, mm -hmm. I'm, I'm going to be a writer? 
I think at a certain point I'd begun writing. Uh, you know, I think a lot of boys will copy their father, and that's what I did when I was young. And then I got older, and I wanted to do the opposite of whatever it was that my father did. Later, uh, our relationship was not always the best. And even though I was writing, I didn't want to be a writer because I was afraid I would, that would mean I would be more like him, which did not appeal to me. Um, but in my early 20s, I had taken up photography in the same fashion I'm talking about. Bought a cheap camera, got a job at a camera store. These older photographers uh, took me under their wing. I took a lot of pictures. Um, and I started writing essays about photography. And at a certain point, I realized I'm not out taking pictures. I'm in this room with a typewriter writing about photography. Uh, and that particular essay was why photography was a better art form than writing. So there was a conflict there because I was using one art form to, to dismiss another one. And I realized what I'm doing is writing. We're back on the Arts Hour, and today our guest is Chris Offutt. We're talking about his new book, Country Dark. Um, in, in the book, so I'm I'm curious about kind of like the people that you knew growing up, mm -hmm. growing up, and how they kind of how much figured into the care you know the main characters mm -hmm. in, in this book. Like Tucker seems you know he's the ultimate woodsman. He's the ultimate kind of tough guy. He he can pretty much do anything he wants to, it seems like. Well, it, it, Tucker's a lot like me in many ways, but none of the ways that you just mentioned. <laughs> <laughs> He's a professional driver, and I'm not a real good driver. Um, he uh, is a teetotaler, and that has not been my life. Um, he is the ultimate woodsman. And I am up to a certain point. Like he knows and is far more resourceful in the woods than I ever will be. So there's a part of it that was writing about uh, the, the, the kind of people, the men, older men that I grew up looking up to and admiring who, you know, when you're a kid, these men seem like they're these larger than life characters who can do anything. And a lot of these guys were were able, at least from my perspective, to do anything. So I wanted to write about about someone uh, who could do that way and who is also very uh, principled. He has real strong, very personal uh, principles that he tries to live by. Um, and, you know, some of those principles and some of the decisions he makes uh, would be questionable by um, certainly the authorities. One of the things that was interesting to me about about Tucker is that, you know, kind of the, the the beginning of the book, he's just in conflict with a lot of, you know, he's kind of getting the best of different dudes and he's, you know, taking care of himself. But then when he's within, you know, he gets married and has children mm -hmm. and you see a totally different, I mean, he's the most doting father and mm -hmm. he seems for someone of his era, of his time period, mm -hmm. has a very... Um, uh, emotional and connect a strong emotional connection to his wife mm -hmm. and, and they seem like soulmates so he has these very different personalities kind of inside and outside the the family structure well I think that's true for most people I really do I think that uh, uh, there's the the persona that you present to the world especially men do that and women do in their own way but this happens to be men and then there's the family life and uh, I known I have known many people who can be very very tough, very difficult in the world, and go home and 
you know, this is solace. This is where they can express love safely to their children, to their wife. Uh, I think it fits me a little bit with my relationship with my sons. And I, I think that the culture of the Hills, particularly then, was um, you you were loyal. You stuck with people. Uh, when I was growing up, I did not know anybody who was divorced, for example. Now it's it's not uncommon. But that the people of that era... Uh, would would uh, would stick would stick with each other no matter what, and I w- I'm interested in that, you know. And I've been divorced too, so it's not like I'm speaking from some uh, moral high ground or anything. But I'm interested in that, and uh, that that level of loyalty in particular is appealing. Yeah. Um, one of the other elements of it that that I, is is kind of the the. Um Within the community, kind of the the intricacies of social interaction. So, mm-hmm. like one example that I think comes up a lot is like mm-hmm. is a man approaching another man's house, mm-hmm. and 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 like kind of all of the steps that they have to kind of you, you know. Uh, um, I think there's one character who comes and he's, you know, you have to kind of announce yourself ahead and and all of that stuff to kind of. I'm coming. I'm not. You know, I'm well, not meeting. You, you, a lot of people don't have phones, so you can't yeah. call. And you might, they might hear your car. But it, it's a world where people have dogs, and it's also a world where, you know, if you live in the woods, you're used to solitude. You are used to being by yourself, and people who show up unannounced uh, are questionable just by their very presence. So the first thing you do is honk your horn to let them know. Right. And you stay in your car till they come out, acknowledge you, and either call the dogs off or they see who you are and invite you up on their porch. Uh, or you wait out there till they see you are, who you are and you decide if you're actually willing to go up on their porch. So the, I, uh, someone else mentioned this, what you're referring to as the intricacy of the social uh, codes. And... I never thought of it that way. It was just like, well, it was pragmatic. Sure, uh, makes sense. Yeah, but a, a it's city... sort of like a do- doorbell. Like you don't, right? right? Here in Jackson, where we are now, if you go to somebody's house, you probably ring a doorbell. You knock at the door. This is just a form of knocking at the door. You ring a doorbell from a distance mm-hmm. with your car horn. Yeah, <laughs> just stepping it back a little bit yeah. from the house. Yeah. Um, Plus, people are often armed. Well, that, and that, com- that that comes up in one scene, definitely, yeah. where there's levels of the arming too. Yeah, right? <laughs> yeah. Um, and that you 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 talked a little bit, you mentioned a little bit when you're talking about kind of going to your friend's house. Mm-hmm. There's they you kind of really get the strong sense of the isolation of the of mm-hmm. their homes, mm-hmm. just like the challenge of the different characters, like trying to get up the, getting, get off the main road and get up the little dirt road to the right. house. They, right. th- there's like long scenes of them trying, you know, some of these people are not sure if they're going to make it or not. Well, the ro- the hills are pretty steep uh, and the roads, all the roads follow creeks to begin with. And then once you branch off those creeks and go up onto the hills where there's ridges and there's ridges that are flat enough to build a house. I grew up uh, up a hill out of Ridge. The other is down in a holler down by the creeks. Now, as a guy from the ridges, I would never live in a holler. The holler people would never live up on the ridge. You know, there's a, an intricate social hierarchy that gets created by humans even in the most isolated circumstances. The isolation that occurred was mainly geographic. Uh, 
all the land was 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 settled by the end of the 1700s, and the hills are so difficult to get through that the westward expansion went north of the Appalachians and south of the Appalachians. So, uh, and there was no industry, so there was never anybody moving in, and people pretty much got used to to being alone and uh, and having that solitude and having nature being being part of nature uh, and living within it. Yeah. We're talking with Chris Offutt today, and we're talking about his new book, Country Dark. Uh, he's Associate Professor of English and Screenwriting at the University of Mississippi. Um, another part, well, I was wondering about kind of, you know, you you grew up there and you've been away many years. Is, mm-hmm. is, is this book, do you have to kind of pull for, since it's historical mm-hmm. somewhat, uh, but it's part of in your lifetime, um, is it all kind of coming from memory in terms of creating these scenes, or is there ever kind of like you have to go back and kind of research certain elements to, to create the detail? Well, it's mainly memory. Uh, it begins in 1954, before I was born. Uh, but the fact is the, the culture of the hills changed very little from the end of the 1800s until – uh, the mid-1960s with the, the declared war on poverty, which was a little more than a skirmish, anyhow. Uh, and then the building of the interstates. So I, I felt comfortable writing about this culture that I grew up grew up with in because after I left, I realized it was a throwback. Uh, you know, I had grown up in a, in a, in a very old-time way and didn't know it. I was just a kid, and I didn't know it till I went out into the world. And People had different ways of doing things. So the research was just minimal in terms of the Korean War, a little bit there, uh, a few dates to make sure that I had things correct. But it was mostly memory. Yeah. And I guess a lot of the the fathers of, you know, kind of, of when you were growing up were mm-hmm. veterans and would mm-hmm. have had that, were, would have had these kind of experiences where they, I guess like a lot of the veterans that I've met, they're very, you know, they didn't really talk about those experiences. I never, I've known veterans, uh, particularly from the Korean and the the, uh, World War II, never had a conversation with any of them. So those uh, parts were completely invented. They're not based on any stories I heard. I just invented them. Mm -hmm. Uh, Imagined my way into them and tried to make them realistic. They're also relatively brief and they occur in flashback, which those two formal elements of, of the narrative allow me to uh, um, not have to go into great detail where I would make errors. <laughs> yeah, have, have veterans come and... Yeah, it's like, no, I wasn't po- like that. Yeah, exactly. You know, I mean, it. I had to find out what kind of rifle the guy had. That wasn't too tough, you know. <laughs> it's interesting that Tucker, he seems to kind of... He, he comes out of a very intense experience in the Korean War. Mm-hmm. He comes in, he becomes... Uh, uh, a driver for you know, a moonshine, you know, mm-hmm. dr- running moonshine, which is another, and there's a lot of intensity to that. Mm-hmm. And then his lighters in prison. So he has kind of this through line of just always kind of, in some ways, being in gu- on guard for mm-hmm. much, of his li- much of his life during the book. Well, I think he is on guard a little bit, but he also lied about his age and joined the Army when he was uh, 16 or 17. So when you have something like that happen that young, uh, and then you're suddenly in, in a combat situation, 
you're going to learn to be on your guard a little bit. Also, there's an element to the isolation of the hills where, you know, you have to be, you have to protect yourself. You know, people are out alone and accidents happen. Accidents happen. You can fall. You can, there can be a chainsaw, uh, uh, you know, accident. There can be a car accident. There can be lines are down and there, there's, there's just a lot of sort of dangers and risks for uh, for people who live in the in the rural countryside. Um, you don't always have to be on guard against it, but it helps if you are. Mm-hmm. Speaking about kind of the um, you know the changes over time and the big changes that were happening in Appalachia at that time. So uh, Bean Pole, who's who's Tucker's boss, who's mm-hmm. kind of the 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 local moonshine kind of distributor, I guess mm-hmm. you'd say. He was above just making moonshine. He yeah. was getting it out into the greater, into Ohio and elsewhere. Was he, was that kind of character, do you think, is that kind of like the end, the end game of him, kind of th- those, those type of, those type of local kind of, uh, you know, uh, I guess you call them underworld, or well, you know. there was no, there's no jobs there. In, yeah. in, there was no jobs except mining, and the the nature of mining is uh, it's short term. Once whatever you're looking for comes out of the ground, coal, clay, natural gas, whatever it is, uh, the the commercial interests in that in that world disappear, as do all the people associated with that industry, and. And there was no other industry. So uh, moonshining was a way to make a living, selling, making it, selling it, distributing it. Um, and then it started in the, with the government's uh, prohibition during the 20s, which created uh, criminals out of people who really just wanted to drink and also gave rise to organized crime. Then during the 40s and 50s, there was an out-migration of, of the hills to uh, work in the factories. And those young men, even though they could buy legal brown liquor, they wanted that illegal white liquor from back home. So there was a market there. And as a result of all this, there was a cultural acceptance of the fact that you know uh, people will willingly engage in this enterprise, even though it might be against the law. Uh, religious people would say, well, God put corn on the earth, right? Um, and there's wine in the Bible. So there wasn't, it wasn't such a taboo culturally thing for men to be involved in it uh, and for women uh, to be supportive of it as well. Uh, and, you know, the, the police were, the, the county uh, sheriffs and deputies were part of this culture too, so they were willing to look the other way uh, in a lot of cases. And, and he was very, and he was kind of like the benefactor in a lot of ways of, of the greater community in he a lot of ways. He had to be. Yeah. He, he had, the Beanpole the Moon Center had to be the benefactor of the community in order to maintain uh, his, his ability to operate just outside of the law, you know. And my home county, for example, was a dry county, which means, right, you can't sell liquor. Now, every so often... There would be people who would say, we need to uh, make it a, a wet county. We'll make a lot of money if we can start selling liquor. And there'd be a hue and cry between the two groups of people. The bootlegger where I grew up uh, would get in league with all the churches. And those two groups would finally band together 
against their common enemy of the people who wanted uh, a, a wet county. And that always just fascinated me. I love that. These sworn enemies until they s- suddenly have a common enemy, which is really just businessmen wanting to, you know, generate income through selling uh, alcohol in a restaurant. <laughs> right. They want to keep their markets. They didn't want yeah. to have competition. Yeah. Right. We're back for the final segment of the Arts Hour. This is Larry Morrissey with the Arts Commission, and our guest today is Chris Offit, and we're talking about his new book, Country Dark. Um, you were mentioning off mic, you know, you live, you, you grew up in the country, now you're mm-hmm. living outside of Oxford, out in the country. <laughs> I'm just curious, what what do you, so you, you I'm sure you wander the, your woods and oh, around yeah. your house. Oh, yeah. What, what do you see as the differences between from where you grew up and up in Lafayette County? Well, just the, the physical landscape. I mean, it, it's called, you know, the North Mississippi Hill Country, and the hills are a lot lower. Um, so there's that. Their underbrush is, is different. It's, they're a little more open woods. Uh, the ground is uh, kind of softer, I think. Uh, there's water moccasins, for example. That's uh, due to the, the wetter, the wetter uh, I guess, climate and, and land here. It's flatter. Uh, those would be the, the main big differences. I mean, last week I found morels, which is, figures in this book. It's a type of mushroom you can eat. called uh, yeah. We called it the dry land fish. Uh, I've been looking for trillium. I haven't seen trillium up that far north. But uh, I like the Mississippi uh, landscape quite a bit because it's it's a beautiful landscape and it's flatter, a little bit flatter, so you can see further. And I like that. Uh, then in the hills is beautiful, but there's a limit to what you can actually see due to the fact that there's going to be a hill real close no matter where you're at. <laughs> what do you do out in the woods? Are you, are you just wander or do you have... <laughs> Do you have uh, goals like morels would be a, a great goal to be out looking for that? Uh, that's in the that's a seasonal goal about yeah. one week a year when right. they're up. The rest of the times I just wander around. Uh, I tr- I try to I do it in the winter first if it's land I'm unfamiliar with because you can see more and I can find my way around. And then if I go back in the Mississippi in the summer is a th- much thicker, heavier woods than dug on there anywhere I've ever lived because it's just so lush and green and and the I think the heat and the humidity makes all the leaves kind of droop a little bit but I just really wander uh, I've spent time out there talking to a turtle uh, once about uh, I realized maybe he had never seen another human before uh, I try not to get lost um, and I let my neighbor, my neighbors know that if they see somebody wandering around back over there, it's going to be me so that they won't take a pot shot or anything like that. Yeah. <laughs> no goal. Okay. Really, no goal. Just wandering. In fact, if I, if I have a goal, I hardly ever accomplish it. If I just wander around, I'll find feathers, I'll find uh, animal skulls, you know, uh, lucky rocks, cool sticks. <laughs> <laughs> I'm really just like a child, you know, in the woods. That's awesome. Uh, another kind of uh, place for people to uh, catch your writing is uh, in the Oxford American. You've been doing a regular column there called Cooking with Chris. That's right. Which is kind of kind of goes every direction, kind of like you know, the wandering in the wood. It kind of mm-hmm. goes every direction. And sometimes there's food in it, and sometimes it's maybe just part of the story. There's a recipe. Let's put it that okay. way. There's not always food. I love the fact that I have a column called Cooking with Chris because I am a lousy cook. <laughs> I can make a sandwich, 
and I was a short-order breakfast cook in Arizona as a very young man so I can make eggs. That's pretty much it. Um, that then gives me license to treat the essays in a, in a way where I can talk about anything or t- treat the, the columns, the food columns, uh, and I like to include a, a recipe. The last one is about an Echo, the, the Amazon Echo machine. Right. I got one for Christmas. That thing drove me nuts. I couldn't take it. But it has allegedly 30,000 or 60,000 recipes. So that was enough for me to then write about it as a food column. There's a bunch of recipes in there. You just got to figure out how to get them out of this ridiculous miniature silo. <laughs> 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 I, I saw also that you like you like collecting uh, like community cookbooks. Is that is yes, that sir? Oh, I have that quite a, a few. Okay, is that more historical or more cooking or how, what's what's your what draw, drew even, you in? I don't even know. I think uh, I had one for a long time. My first grade teacher gave me one, and then I got another one, uh, and then my mother had some, and so I took those when she, you know, after my father passed away, she moved down to Oxford. So I just, you know, I decided to take those and. I became interested in them when I read them. They're real uh, cool windows into not only the past, but into a local community and a lack of self-consciousness about it. Uh, they're very often uh, personal. There's little anecdotes in them. Uh, then there's – it was also a way that women could participate in the culture and be uh, noticed and get credit. It was one of the few ways they could um, What through the – the assemblage of these community cookbooks, and that interests me as well. Do you think it will ever kind of like lead into some of your writing? Would you, would you I think, use or, them all the time for the you? food column. Yeah, I dip okay. into them. Some of them are based directly on it, on uh, on these old recipes. Uh, there's times when I'll, I'll go through ten or twelve uh, of them at a time and pull out a few that this could be really interesting later, and I make a little. You know, if you're a collector, you also are an organizer. So there's a heap of yes, no's, maybe's, great ones, not so good. Uh, and then I just start all over again after a while. But I, I, I do like community cookbooks. And also, I tell you what, if you're, they're cheap. They're always at the Goodwill. Right. They're always at the secondhand shops. They're always in yard sales, and they never cost much. Perfect. And they're historical right there. <laughs> they're yeah. historical. Yeah. We're talking with Chris Offit about his new book, Country Dark, among other things. Um, I wanted to go back, though, and, mm-hmm. and uh, hear a little bit about your time, how, how, you, got, how you got into screenwriting. Because you, you mentioned, mm-hmm. I saw another interview, that you really didn't even watch much television mm-hmm. growing up and uh, kind of missed a lot of the last 30 years or so we of got, TV. We got one channel uh, when I was a kid on a little black and white set that was fuzzy. If it stormed, we didn't get that. And the TV came from West Virginia. You know, as uh, we lived so far in the woods, we had to get our TV from out of state, as so to speak. Uh, and I got bored with it around age 14. You know, there was just nothing much on there. And what was on there was hardly worth looking at a lot of the time. So I quit and read and all. And then, I don't know, 20-some years passed. And um, a guy had read a short story of mine and, and wanted to option it uh, for a movie. And I said, "Wow, that sounds good." This was on a phone. I said, "How much?" And there wasn't—it wasn't very much. I thought it should—you know—if I'm going to do this, there should be more. And I asked him why, 
I asked for more. He said, no, he had to pay a screenwriter uh, later, and it was going to cost him more to pay a screenwriter. So I said, I tell you what, how about you option it to me for half what you're offering and then hire me to write the screenplay for half of what you pay him? And the guy thought about it and said, okay, because he was going to save you know, a lot of money. And I was going to make, uh, we're not talking about hundreds of thousands, like this was in around the $25,000 range. Yeah. But, you know, it was important to me as a family man. So that's kind of how I fell into it was uh, got lucky and then tried to make a deal. And then I wrote one of the world's worst screenplays uh, as a result of that. <laughs> it was, it would be pretty unsuitable because I really didn't know what I was doing. Right. But I committed to learning how and then do you, you went out to Los? do you go yeah. out to los angeles and, and not work anymore or? but okay. i did i worked on uh uh i found out that television is a business so they treat it like a business and they pay you on a regular salary and you know uh i got a paycheck and i liked that and i could go out there for set periods of time i wrote for true blood when it was uh on the air uh and weeds which was a uh, uh a pretty good show. Both those shows are pretty good. And then Treme for a while, uh, which I really liked working on Treme. Then I found out that they will actually pay more for a pilot because a pilot is is harder to write because you have to create the world and tell a story and start all these characters off. Not only will they pay you more, but you can do it from home. So I thought, all right, I'm jumping into the pilot writing feet first. Hmm. Uh then I cannot be in Los Angeles, which was not a good fit for me. Like, there's no woods. I I bumped into things with my rental automobiles on a weekly basis. I don't mean wrecks. I just mean there's a lot of obstacles there to, to kind of squeeze up against. Yeah. But I could uh, – then I moved to Mississippi and did that for a while. Uh, so it was sort of accidental and motivated by need to, to for my boys to go to college. They got out of college. And uh, I thought, well, I'm I'm going to get out of that world. I'll go back to novels, and I like teaching, and I love teaching at the, you know, at the University of Mississippi. What kind of English classes are you teaching besides the screenwriting? I teach undergraduate screenwriting and uh, a graduate fiction writing course uh, every couple of years. There's several of us who teach those. You know, right. it's a very good writing program. Yeah, uh, and there's a master's degree there. Um, and then I teach an intro to film class. I, I really like that. Um, and then occasionally I will teach a, a, a literary seminar, which has a little latitude into whatever it is I, either I'm interested in, in teaching or what the students are sort of express interest in learning about. Um, that's pretty much it. I love teaching the undergrads. I'll tell you why, because, you know, the, a lot of the students at the University of Mississippi are from Mississippi, and they're from smaller towns, right? Right. Just as I was. I know exactly what it's like to grow up in this little town and then go somewhere to go to college and be excited, intimidated, um, scared, uh, and have a burning urge to learn. And how does that kind of, how do you approach those kids then since you kind of see, you know, a bit of yourself in them? Is there some specifics that are different from a, a class full of uh, suburban kids that they need? I don't know. I don't, don't know. Uh, 
I think I'm more comfortable with with the students here. I think if uh, I wouldn't really know how to try to talk to a lot of suburban kids or or, or kids from who had grown up in cities. Um, I wouldn't know how to try to approach them. But with the University of Mississippi students, I feel very comfortable. I feel comfortable here. I feel like I can be myself, and I can also model for them that, you know, if you're someone who knows a lot of big words you learn from reading books, you're going to mispronounce them because you're not going to hear anybody say them. And it's little things like that that I think can uh, make a difference is that uh, uh, for, a, for a young person. And I try to, I'm, I'm supportive of their writing. I know how important it is. Uh, and also what it's like to be interested in reading and writing and literature and art in an environment where there's not a lot of support for it or opportunities. Yeah, for sure, for sure. Well, Chris, thank you so much for coming in today. We really appreciate you it. You bet. It was my pleasure. And I'd like to also thank the Mississippi Arts Commission for supporting this book. Yes, you are a previous Arts Fellowship recipient, Literary right. Arts Fellowship recipient. Yep. Absolutely. Thank you so much. All right. For those of you who like to, uh, you tuned in late, you'd like to listen back to the whole show or you'd like to share it with a friend, you can go to the MPB website at mpbonline.org. They post all our past shows as streaming files, or you can go on to iTunes or your other podcast uh, catching device and pick it up as a podcast as well. Until next time, I'll be seeing you around.